Welcome to a replay of That's a Wrap, episode number four. Hi, I'm Eric Marshall. I am one of the three hosts of That's a Wrap, along with Nicholas Schlegel and Christopher Gullen. We're doing a replay of episode number four, which originally aired on May 31st, 2013, so three and a half years ago, now that we're in uh, November of 2016. The reason we're doing this replay is because it's about film noir. Uh, Nick Schlegel and I interviewed David Hogan, who wrote the film noir FAQ. This guy knows a lot about film noir. And uh, we get into a lot of different topics, and it's a very nice, wide-ranging conversation about the genre. Why are we replaying it, though? Well, because our next episode, episode number 45, is an interview with the czar of noir, Eddie Muller. Uh, Nick and I talked to Eddie Muller about some pretty deep topics in film noir, uh, whereas this conversation with Dave Hogan tends to be a little more general and a little more uh, universal, I guess you could say. The interview that will be released later this week is a little more specific. We talk about some uh, potentially obscure films. We do talk about film noir in general, about the genre, whether it's a genre or a style, how do you define it, things like that. But we do dive pretty deeply pretty quickly. So I thought it would be nice to have both of these episodes side by side so you can listen to them one after the other. If you're new to the show, welcome. We usually do a segment called pickups at the beginning where we talk about what's going on in our lives what movies we've seen things like that uh kind of reconnect and then we move into principal photography which is the main course of the uh podcast i've decided to go straight into the episode today uh dropping the pickups and going right into segment one after this little intro. So you can just dive right into the interview. If you want to hear the pickups and the entire episode, you can go to that's a rap show.com and then navigate down to episode number four. That's where you will also find show notes for all of our episodes and links to the audio for all of our episodes, as well as a link to Patreon where you can uh, support us, if you like, in our never-ending quest to bring you fun yet intelligent conversation about film. And you can, uh, from there, also get to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you want to subscribe to the podcast uh, and where you can also leave reviews. When we recorded this episode back in 2013, we did have some audio problems. Uh, that are a little distracting towards the very end of the conversation. I did try to salvage as much as I could, and you'll hear me jump in later and tell you where that happens. But for the most part, it's completely listenable, fluid, no problem. So I hope you enjoy this replay, this encore presentation of episode number four, and we'll see you soon for episode number 45. Thanks a lot. Today in Principal Photography, we have uh, Dave Hogan, who has written a book called Film Noir Fact, or FAQ. Uh, it's uh, hot off the presses, and you can get it on Amazon. We're going to have a link on the on the website at that's a show dot, uh, that's a <laughs> at that's a rap show dot com. We will have a link to the book. Uh, welcome, David. It's a treat to be here. Thank you very much. I should probably state right up front uh, uh, a certain amount of bias. Dave is a friend, and uh, I'm very uh, honored and privileged to call him a friend, and we're very happy to have him, of course, on the show. 
Um, but my, uh, notwithstanding any bias, we are here to talk about this, uh, this really incredible release, uh, of yours, David, which is, um, one hell of a read. Um, I, I was, I keep it by my, uh, by my bed every night and read a, you know, a couple of sections of, on films that I know or don't know. Um, just to read your, your really, in, in, uh, acute insight into them. So what I, was, is it keeping you warm at night? I hope so. warm. <laughs> well, the stuff, the stuff with the femme fatales is definitely, you know, heating me up before I go to bed. So oh yeah. Me too. The description too. of Anne Blythe in, in, uh, Mildred Pierce, especially, which I oh, may even God. read later just to give listeners an idea of what they're in, uh, in store for. Um, uh, Building off of that, though, what was sort of the uh, the catalyst for you to write the book? Well, I done I'm an earlier um, FAQ book at the same publisher on the Three Stooges. Um, interestingly enough, and it did quite well. I, I'm a got it. I'm an awful nice notice. I'm, I'm in the New York Times, and and I mean, it just sold well. And actually, my publisher approached me. And asked if I were interested in film noir. <laughs> uh, and of course, my first instinct was to say, Oh, yeah, you bet. And, and, and I kind of reined myself in a moment. And I thought, you know, a lot of other books are out there on this subject. Is there anything fresh I can bring out to the table here? That's, I was thinking the same thing when, I, when, when Nick was telling me about a film noir book. I was thinking, why Why do we need another one? And you just answered the question. I think it's uh, it really fills a hole, and it kind of limits the uh, the genre a little bit compared to uh, some previous books, which I think is, is very interesting. It does. Yeah, and, and I think it's also so I'm on the unique side in that uh, um, it's a combination of film history mm-hmm. um, and an appreciation of the genre. And it looks also at the technical aspects of these films and at the production histories. And, uh, you know, it's a complete picture of all these films as art and as product of a business and as product of a culture. Yeah. I think that's really one of the the book's strongest points, actually, is that it's a, it's, you're conducting film history through like probably the best channels that a historian could. You're looking at the films aesthetically. You're looking at them technologically. You're looking at them from an industrial and economic standpoint. And you're also gauging social attitudes towards them when they came out as well as um, in contemporary times as well, looking back. Yes, a genre had flourished at the beginning of the Second World War up until about 1960. And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating period in our history. Uh, Monumental changes. I'm I'm at the beginning of that period. America was still pretty, I call it provincial, I guess. And and, I'm in 1945. I think a lot of that provincialism uh, uh, hit uh, had been swept away, and uh, and 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 then come the fifties, <clears throat> and all of these post-war um, expectations, and everyone, everybody wants optimism, mm-hmm. and I'm mean, they're getting wrapped up in the rat race, and uh, and in the early post-war. Uh, uh, oh, inflation was awful. I mean, there was no housing, uh, unemployment, and and a lot of veterans and their mates thought, "Is this exactly what I was fighting for?" <laughs> yeah, where's the uh, where's the American dream, right? What was I fighting for? Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think that film noir um, expresses a lot of that weariness. And, and that disappointment. And, I um, it's a really, um, ambivalent feeling. And I think Americans had those feelings almost against their will. Uh, uh, as if it, 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 it um, it's almost un-American. Uh, 
but people really were questioning a lot of things. And all of that I mean, is reflected in the noir genre. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true as well, that, that there, it really um, takes up some of the unconscious desires and fears going on at the time, um, you know, kind of unexpectedly. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that people who listen to this podcast probably have a pretty good idea of what film noir is, and I know it's a very uh, somewhat contested genre or contested definition, but um, wh- I'm interested to know, like, what would your uh, definition of film noir be for those who maybe are not as familiar with it? Um, just to start, because I'm sure we'll we'll pick apart the definition later. But mm-hmm. just uh, as an overview, how would you uh, define film noir? I think the easy definition is it's of that period, <laughs> about 1940 up to 1960, and it's typically in black and white, and and it has a criminal element about it. But ultimately, I think it's about attitude. And, and I alluded to that in my earlier comments. Um, it's a sense that life, um, especially in the city, is uh, not to be completely comprehended, uh, that there are forces in the American city uh, that are are actively working against you, and I think the horror of it is uh, that there's no malice involved. Uh, oh, wow. It's just the system, uh, and uh, almost oh, every element of your life is out of your control, and and then you start to think about the system. And, and it dawns on you that even the politicians yep. are are out of the loop. I, 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 I mean, they don't have a clue. And uh, I guess that it ultimately boils down, oh, uh, I mean, it's a question of money and power. Mm. And it can exist, you know, on the macro level. Uh, in the overarching activity of the culture and of city life, and it can exist on the micro level. Uh, I'm at the level of personal relationships. And it's just a very, very difficult slog. And uh, um, I think often these films are characterized as cynical, and and I don't see it as a cynical genre. Um, in fact, it's almost queerly hopeful. It's about awareness, I think. Yeah, can you clarify what you mean by that? I I, I don't find them as cynical uh, myself, but I do find them very fatalistic. Uh, yes, a lot of, of them, you know, are into predeterminism and uh, mm-hmm. um, and fate, of course. Uh, and I think that the pictures of that, of that sort are often wonderful. Look at Detour. Um, it's all about, uh, oh, happenstance. I'm in miserable serendipity. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you begin one of the chapters with a quote from Detour, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, uh, I, I yes, I think I did. I thought, yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I want to come back to that. And for, I, I think that you elegantly lay out your, your, you know, definition in your intro. Um, which you need to do as a sort of statement of a rationale or something like that, mm-hmm. because noir is a somewhat contested thing. Is it a movement that, or a style that permeates across genres? Is it a genre itself? Um, and I, I think you do a really excellent job of sort of laying out the boundaries and confines and, and you're into, and you, and you've just given us a nice addendum on that in your, your, your discussion of it just now. I thought that that sort of definition was necessary. Um, it's a genre that's attracting a lot of younger film fans, and, and I mean they're very enthusiastic. I um, mean, like anyone else, they're anxious to discover something. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I discovered film noir as a young man myself. I think most of us did. Yeah. You know, I was um, in my uh, late teens, early twenties, I think, probably. Same here, Eric. Uh, and I just 
I fell in love with the genre and I, I, I sought it out uh, as much as I could. I went on this bender for a year where I just watched <laughs> so many different film noir. I guess if you think about it, it's a genre with a lot of appeal for the late adolescent mindset. Oh, yeah. Um, and there is nothing adolescent about the genre. <laughs> it's just that it appeals to that you know, early nihilism all of us go through. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you might even say the late adolescent male um, kind of kind of psyche, I guess, uh, because it's... Oh, yeah, it's... I mean, they're very male-oriented. You know, the femme fatale is always... You know, cherchez la femme, the, the French say, right? You know, um, <laughs> right. You know, always look for the woman when something goes wrong. And that's that's kind of one of the, the driving forces of film noir, for, for Well, it becomes a real fatal cocktail because... Mm-hmm. Just like Eric said, I was the same age and watching the exact same films, uh, going to the library, go- ordering them through, you know, Sinister Cinema at the back of magazines and things like that, trying to get my hand on every noir I could at the time. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah as, you're a, as a, uh, but it was a, that, like I said, that fatal cocktail between what, what David said, that sort of, you know, nihilistic sensibility of your late teens, but also the idea that, Combine that with the, the beautiful sort of black widow spider of a woman entangling you and snarling her, you in, in her web as you go down happily with her. <laughs> and it's just like that was the stuff of the 18 year old in, in me. Yeah, and probably also the fact that you feel like the world is against you, right? You can't figure out what's oh, going on, you can't understand it. No, no, nobody understands me. <laughs> yeah. And the deck is stacked against me. And and it's a dark, miserable world. Right. On the one hand, you know, it's an immature point of view. <clears throat> and yet on the other, you know, it's got more than a grain of truth to it, too. <laughs> I got a question for you, Dave. Um, and, and it has to do with exactly what we're talking about, which would be, did any of your assumptions or opinions change when you applied your criteria to specific films like you talk about how cry danger which is a you know i love i watched it with mark last year yes uh, i love it too or moonrise for example uh which we also watched last year which some people consider sort of a a, a swampy rural noir and others don't or even say something like the company she keeps or you know if, what did, were there any discoveries that you made where you said i'd like to include this but according to my own criteria i can't <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, actually, one of them is Cry Danger. Cry Danger, yes. It's a 1950 picture that Rob Parrish directed. Dick Powell is in it. Uh, I'm the wonderful character actor, Richard Erdman. Uh, Ryan Com- on NBC's Community, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that out. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. Yeah, I, I, and, 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 and I'm a big fan of that film. Uh, I'm its terse. And, and it's concise and smart. But as I thought about it, it just really struck me as a mystery suspense, um, emphasis on mystery, really. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm another writer uh, couldn't make a case that it's a noir film. I simply didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I went through all the possible films... I really don't think I altered my opinions about things. Um, I guess I had thought about it long enough that I had a good idea of what, to me, um, is noir. And uh, uh, um, I said earlier, um, a lot of fans are anxious to find a new thing and, and... and, and, and a lot of them were anxious to find a new noir. Yeah. And so they're out there stretching that definition. <clears throat> uh, and, and they're including, a little, uh, a, a little too enthusiastically, huh? Yeah. And a little thoughtlessly, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you, what do you think, David, is the, uh, biggest error people make in, in, in misclassifying noir? In really broad terms, if it's in black and white, if it has a craggy fella, <laughs> I'm in a fedora, and driving a 1950, <laughs> right, 
And and if he's driving a 1950 Nash Air Flight, <laughs> I'm a yeah, automatically film noir. <laughs> that's that's funny. But, you know, one of the, one of my favorite films um, of all time. Um, I've always thought of as a noir, and now that I'm thinking about it, I think that maybe you won't. And uh, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what you have to say about uh, about this in particular, um, the the film In a Lonely Place. Yes, it's in the book. Yeah, I saw I saw that you you mentioned it. But I wasn't sure if that would fit because it's not it's not in the city in the same way that some of them are, right? But you do have the femme fatale and all that. Do you do you consider that a noir? Yeah, I do, and and um, it's because of the deep uh, problems of the central character, of the Bogart character, and the deep ambivalence of the woman Gloria Graham, uh, right. and 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 it slowly dawns on her that this brilliant, often charming man is a sociopath. Right, uh, and he starts pushing and pushing on that romantic button, um, and and it scares her. And uh, I'm another little Philip of all this is that the woman uh, herself has uh, 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 it, it, it's a colorful past. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you agree. Um, you know, because that's one of the ones that I put in the uh, the kind of you know in the collection of of, of film noir. Um, it's a little later. You know, it's in the it's in the mid fifties, but um, I think it's. Uh, I think it really works. Early fifties, actually, fifty or fifty one. I think that's right. You're right. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I think it is fifty. Actually, yeah. that brings up a good point, though. Um, this is a, another issue that has been hotly contested among historians and authors and fans, which is, what is the first noir? Many many think that Fritz Lang's M, even mm-hmm. though it's not an American film, is a noir. Other people cite RKO Stranger on the Third Floor. You talk about another Fritz Lang film, Fury, with Spencer Tracy, uh, being what you consider to be the first... Uh, um, true noir. Can you can you explain exactly why you feel that one sort of like was maybe the obvious choice as a starting point? I can, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm other than Fury. Uh, 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 every picture I cover is uh, 1940 through 1960. I'm in the earliest one. I'm a stranger on the third floor. Uh, and, 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 and I didn't make an exception I'm in the case of Fury, and uh, it's just the classic innocent man I'm wrongly accused from. Uh, True, true. And and it's Fritz Lang, and so it is highly charged. Uh, It's almost merciless in its assault, not simply on the protagonist, but on the audience as well. Yes. Uh, It is wrenching. It is nothing like a mob film, to, oh, you know. Right. Just, just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's a real picture of human nature at its bloody worst. I mean, you know, it's it's almost a hate letter to the human race, really. Uh, and uh, it's also getting into all this business of the establishment and of the power structure and. I mean, a particular film of the legal system and and, and of jurisprudence. And uh, although uh, the local sheriff is actually sympathetic uh, and understands uh, uh, the Spencer Tracy character's dilemma, he can't hold back um, uh, uh, the local crowds. I mean, he's helpless. Uh, you know, I mean, again, this is the establishment, and and it's powerless, and uh, uh, it might be fate, it might be the inevitable uh, 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 incompetence of people, 
Um, it's pretty bleak and despairing. It is bleak. It's brutal. And like you say, it it's is. highly charged and, and it kind of segues into my next question for you, which is, you know, my own, my own opinion is that the, the Warner Brothers crime films of the thirties that were quickly establishing Warner Brothers in that, in that sort of general aesthetic and that theme of being, being, being the home of, you know, James Cagney and so on mm -hmm. and Edward G. Robinson. The, uh, I always felt that those crime, crime films of Warner Brothers were a nice dry run for the noir of the forties, the, uh, with Michael Curtis and Anton, uh, Grotz art direction and, and film, you know, Mildred Pierce. Of course, that's a forties product, but early, earlier mm -hmm. films, the, the, uh, Cagney and Robinson stuff. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, well, of all of the classics, to say that Warner Brothers I mean, is my absolute favorite. Oh, is it? Yes, I think it was always um, the most honest and truthful. And uh, I mean, and vis a vis noir, it was a unique house in that it elevated character actors into leading men. Yeah, yeah. And then because of that, uh, those actors had um, a lot of latitude. And although they were I'm out there I'm as leading men, uh, they often played awfully troubled fellas or even out and out skunks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know, I think a reason that say MGM had had a relatively limited experience um in war is that they had actors like Gable and Robert Taylor uh, and uh, cut from the, the leading man, you know, uh, cloth. It's the archetypal leading man. Yeah, upstanding, clean, handsome. And uh, uh, it was easier at Warner... And it was easier also at an even smaller studio at RKO, uh, and, 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 and did elevated Robert Ryan, who was possibly the greatest of all, um, actors in the noir genre. I'm so glad, you know, you provided me with another wonderful transition into my next comment and question, which is, this is actually more of a personal statement, um, as we're talking about studios and what they were known for. And I would say that, I personally, and I, I know you probably are too, I'm, I'm pulled for various reasons to the less prestigious noirs. I'm, I've always been really attracted to the B units, uh, at Warner's and at Universal and RKO and a lot of the minors like Eagle and, you know, Eagle Lion, Monogram, Poverty Row. Um, yes, absolutely. Which, yes, which isn't to say that I don't have a love for the, the major noirs that, say, Fox put out with, you know, the, with the Preminger unit and films like Nightmare Alley. I mean, I love the more polished ones too, but there's something that pulls me to the B efforts. I just find them sort of, you know, I don't know if it's budgetary or, or what it is, but the, the quicker schedules and the, the faster shooting pace kind of just pulled these films right from the, the, the id of the writer, the dream world of the writer directly onto the page. And then was, they were filmed so quickly that there was something almost hypnotic in the, in the, the B units. Well, it, 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 it's the artistic success of those little bees. Uh, 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 that's awfully exciting. Uh, and, and they were on, on absurdly tight schedules and on small budgets. I mean, they go out there. And they're spinning gold out of cotton candy. <laughs> nice. And, it, and, and it's amazing. Uh, and it's a mark of professionalism, obviously. Uh, I'm at the B level. I'm as no less smart and professional. Um, also, the B units had my certain freedom in that uh, the top brass didn't really pay them a whole lot of attention. Um, as far as actors and actresses went, these films uh, 
often had, you know, old, uh, sure. older cast-off actors in them and often functioned um, as training grounds and, and as good experience yes. for younger actors. Uh, you know, and that was... Uh, it, um, it's all well and good. And, uh, I mean, each of these is at such a low budget, they're going to make money. Um, and so the front office, if it doesn't quite have a hands-off attitude, um, it's almost like a double eh, picture anyhow. attitude. Yeah, right, exactly. Do you feel that let the uh, cinematographers and directors experiment more? The fact that they had very little oversight and they had to do things on a budget? Yeah, that's a good thought. You know, I don't think I really uh, had consciously thought about that. But, yeah, I, I think you're right that they did end up feeling a lot more emboldened. I mean, even as they did not feel necessarily more freedom i mean that the budget was always there and that shooting schedule but if you know that you're pretty sharp and talented and that you're just expected to hack something out and that you can turn out you know a piece of crap and get by with it well how's about if we just all of us turn it up a little bit guys and gals I'm going to do something you know, special with this picture. You're almost paraphrasing Edward Dimitrik, who, who I, in an interview I had heard say basically the exact same thing, that he wanted to get the attention of the brass. So, you know, by shooting these, these, um, mm, yeah. through the B units, uh, there was some sort of, uh, budgetary creativity, uh, so he could, you know, minimal takes, Single key lighting, inventive camera camera movements to cut down on yep. setups and things like that. Just uh, they they were being more creative because of the the lack of well money, frankly. And it was apparently, according to him, catching the eyes of some of them. Yes, I think they had to be more creative. I agree with you there. Um, I think the archetypal oh, B unit oh, yeah, director yeah, yeah, is yeah. Richard fact, Fleischer. Uh, uh, I just had Eric watch uh, Ninety Nine River Street the other day. <laughs> Yeah, that was, oh that was God, great. I love that movie. It's streaming on Netflix. That's how I got to see it. So if anyone's listening, wants to watch that ninety nine. Uh. Well, I remember when I first. Well, first of all, Mark was the one that brought it to my attention. When I remember watching it, and you and I had a conversation. I think on Facebook about how I thought uh, Evelyn Keys was awfully cute in that film. <laughs> yes, and 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 I never really thought of her um, as sexually provocative. And in this picture, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, it isn't just that. In, I mean, in order to manipulate male characters, um, uh, uh, her character comes across as highly sexed. And uh, um, it's pretty exciting to yeah, watch, yeah, frankly. Um, that, that one shot in that, in that film where she's, they're in the theater and oh. she's uh, trying to convince him that, um, that a murder had taken place and that thing's done in one take. And I thought that was so interesting and, and her performance is so good. But given what you just said, you guys are both saying about the, about the B aspect. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that was necessary. You, you know, you were talking about trying to, um, eliminate setups and do, you know, do longer takes. I mean, now that I'm looking back at that, at that film, it seemed very in interesting and, and kind of daring, but now maybe it was out of necessity. I mean, maybe, maybe we have no way of knowing that, but. Well, I think there's something a little bit pejorative about the oh, B picture term. Um, it's well worth, I'm keeping in mind, I think, uh, that B units are not, that these people, generally speaking, yes really knew their craft or crafts and they could just go out there and do it. I mean, it wasn't a bunch of method acting yeah, stuff. It things down tremendously. It, it, it just, oh, oh yeah. Hugely. Yeah. And it's just go out. I mean, hit your marks and, and then you understand I'm all your blocking and all your dialogue. I mean, the camera's going and then you just do it. And it's because, because of that professionalism, I am almost certain that I mean, 99 River Street, the director, Phil Carlson, was not attempting to cut corners on that three-minute take. He did it because it was going to be exciting and 
And protracted. Yes. And protracted. You know, and and also because right. it was Evelyn Keys, and she was a complete professional, and 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 the same goes for yeah, she had, you know, she had quite a pedigree people. coming into that uh, film. Uh, forgive me, I misspoke. Oh, hell, uh, yeah. That was Phil Carlson. I I meant to I I meant to say uh, narrow yes, margin, correct. which I just made a copy of for Eric tonight. Um, which I know you consider to be, you know, one oh, of the, yeah. the king of king of the bees, and in terms of noir, and I couldn't agree more. It's it along there, along with Lady Vanishes, yeah. it's my favorite train film of all time. And and oh. uh, you know, I'm a I've been in love with Marine Windsor yeah. since I was a little kid, and I absolutely adore Narrow Margin, and uh, and you write about it quite lovingly in the book. I sat with my wife um, last night. And, and and enjoyed Marie, no, I mean, city that never sleeps. <laughs> it's such a treat just to watch her, all five foot nine oh, yeah. or five foot ten of her, and, and those enormous wide set eyes. I haven't had figure to die for. The unconventional beauty and the sharpness of her voice. And there's something very challenging about an actress like that. And, and about the sorts of characters that I'm an actress of that power, that physical you know, power. Dave, the first time I ever came across Marie Windsor, I was about six years old yeah. watching Abbott and Costello yeah. meet the mummy. And, uh, um, oh, yeah, I mean, right, she's yeah, just yeah. brutal in that. In the beginning, she's playing the sort of bon vivant and trying to seduce the, the amulet out of, out of Lou, who's inadvertently swallowed it and she's willing to pay a large <laughs> sum for it and she's dressed to the nines. <laughs> But then later, just like you know, what the hell with the charade? <laughs> she calls in her henchmen, and then they then they rough him up, and she's just so dominant. And I thought, wow, that was my first introduction to her when I was all of about six years old, and I've I've been in love with her ever since. And so let me I add something about uh, about actresses and and our understandings of women in film. An actress like Marie Windsor, active in the forties and fifties in the main, has a lot more guts and balls and power than an army of 21st century actresses holding two handguns, I'm screaming around corners on a high-powered motorcycle, I'm running up the walls, I'm doing backflips, I'm all the rest of that bullshit. Uh, That is not what a woman is. You know, uh, it's a complete male fantasy, and and there's something very condescending and insulting about it. But in these film noir pictures, uh, it's a much more adult view of women. They don't need you know a ginormous AK-47, you know, or uh, you know, judo skills or anything else like that. I mean, yes, often they might have a little gun, a sweet little twenty-five automatic in their purse. But uh, if they're going to dominate you, it is mainly by the force of, of their intelligence and their personalities. And in that respect, I think that the genre's treatment of women is startlingly modern. And, and, and it puts our ostensibly modern um, conception to shame. Uh, that's very, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I was, yeah, I wanted to ask a question that was kind of in the same vein, um, in, in a way, because you're absolutely right. The woman in, in film noir in, in, in that period would use their wits, their beauty, their sexuality, um, and, and their, and their, uh, you know, if that all fails, they usually have male henchmen around to, to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. And there's this very, uh, fairly explicit sexuality. But when I, th- when I think about film noir, one of the things I think about, I think about all the things that we've talked about already in terms of the World War II and post-World War II anxieties, the dangers of the city, um, the kind of yes. uh, not knowing what's going on or, or, or kind of feeling like you've been sold a bum deal with the American dream, all that. But the other thing I think about is yep. that the period of film noir coincides almost exactly with the um, period of the production code. 
And oh yeah, and I often, that, I often yes. wonder about that. About you know whether what does that constrain the film noir, or are they just kind of pressing as as hard as they can against the the restrictions of that code? And I and I wonder if the code made film noir possible in a lot of ways. Well, uh, it's the latter situation. Um, it was the filmmakers constantly pushing on the boundaries of the code. Um, and, uh, again, I guess that they often got away with it because they were just thought to be throwaway pictures. Uh, you know, and now, you know, all these years later, you know, after the big brouhaha uh, about major pictures like <laughs> the moon is blue, I mean, the word I virgin know, in know. dialogue. I mean, and who the hell actually cares about the moon is blue anymore? Nobody. But everybody's interested. Caused such a scandal. In, say, the big heat. Huge. I mean, that was litigated. litigated yes. Years. But it has justifiably dropped out of the collective cultural yes. consciousness. Uh, uh, and then on the other hand, a picture like the big heat, another one by Lang, uh, and the coffee splashing scene <laughs> that is so friggin' shocking. It's shocking. I mean, large part in that the victim is a beautiful woman, and then even more, it's a person that we like and care about. Uh, I mean, it's not another faceless video game victim. Right. You know, this is a fully developed character. Uh, and she's full of, you know, of color and of love of life and sauciness and defiance. Uh, and then Lee Marvin splashes her yeah. flesh in the face with a scalding coffee. You know, uh, and, and uh, I would guess that the production code was not happy about that sequence. Uh, although Lang... And his editor cut it so well. It's a tight shot of Lee Marvin's hand as it comes into frame and grips the handle of the coffee pot. I'm picturing it, yep. Yeah. I mean, then moves it out of frame. And then Gloria Graham just shrieked off screen. And then in the next cut, her hands are covering her face. And she still... In it's horrible a pain. That scene and, and shows just how on top of things Lang think, still was. Yes. And then that next, um, it's next cut, um, is onto Marvin on his face and, and he's yeah, just glowering and grinning. Sadistic, and this was yeah. sadistic pleasure. Absolutely. Um, and so it's not graphic, but the suggestion, the, the timing of the, oh cuts. my gosh, the word you used a few minutes ago oh, was shocking. So and, you know, I think my own two cents on it would be, and I'll just throw this out there was I obviously I wasn't, I wasn't around to watch the films at the time, but if I were to put myself psychically in those shoes, I would think maybe because in pop culture, sexuality was less, far less discussed openly and less deconstructed and less, uh, less just basically out in the open, less ubiquitous. It's still, it wasn't so explicit. It still right. seemed, it probably had a much more forceful, shocking, and brutal, brutal sort of uh, effect, especially when codified into sequences. That's my own guess. Yes, it was being explored. Uh, I mean, it's graphic, yet roundabout ways, uh, and that roundabout aspect is, I think, simultaneously titillating exactly. and shocking. You think that you're seeing a lot more. Uh, 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 than you're actually seeing, and the overall effect, you know, it's like a, you know, a hard kick right in the chops. But that's artistry. You know, if you're looking at a sequence of that sort, you know, it's Fritz Lang and his editor, um, and, and it's Lee Marvin and it's Gloria Graham, and it just, uh, I was not going to get. I'm any more capable than that. <laughs> more lively. We have a few more topics for you here. Um, and sure. moving on to the next one, I, I have a couple of questions about favorites. Maybe we can all chime in 
with some things here. Mm. Um, I, I, I want to just start off and say what, do, do all of us have a favorite, one particular favorite femme fatale? I, I know that I do, but I thought I'd ask you first, David. Is there, and one, mm. one actress in one film that does it for you? It's a draw, probably. And it's Marie Windsor, I mean, narrow margin. And just Gloria Graham, I'm as Betty Marsh, yep. I'm in the big heat. Wow, that's two powerful uh, choices there. I, I, of those two, I don't even know who I could pick. It's uh, Sophie. I don't think no, they, they don't. make dames like that anymore. <laughs> dames ain't around no more, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, what a couple of hard babes. I mean, yet they're just so smart and so clever and, 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 and they're so yes. good. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I'm at self-survival. I hate to tell you this. I don't really have a favorite, you know, in that, in that category. I, um, I like the idea of the femme fatale, but, you know, there's always that, that danger, which is, of course, attractive, but not, but I, I don't, I don't really have a favorite. I hate to say it. I'm, on, I'm under pressure here. Under the gun. All. Yeah. I can't have one. So, you know, I might as well love them all. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> I can I can easily say without a doubt. I mean, she's haunted my dreams since since I saw Out of the Past, and for me, it's it's oh. it's Kathy Moffat. Jane Jane Greer, for me, will always be the the quintessential baddie. Oh God, you know she's you know she's the type of I mean femme fatale that you would just follow into the, the depths of hell, even though you know you just get stuck down there forever, you know? I think that says something about you, Nick. Yeah, not, <laughs> let's not psychoanalyze me here. <laughs> I think a neat thing about Jane Greer is that unlike um, a number of, of the other um, femmes fatale, she oh. had this delicate, almost porcelain beauty Uh and she wasn't quite as no. unique as the Marie Windsor or a Gloria too, Graham. Too beautiful. Uh, there, was no, there was no sort of roughness around the edges, and that's probably what made her so deceptive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I use the word "I'm unique" uh, in part in the sense mm-hmm. of something off-putting yes. about them, or something intimidating about a Windsor. Or a Graham. And yet, uh, on the surface, Greer, I'm um, as Kathy Moffat, I'm as this perfect beauty. You know, and, uh, uh, on the surface of it, uh, she's lovely, perfectly lovely. Uh, but it's the rot and the psychosis underneath and that self-centeredness Oh, and I'm in mean, the endless scheming. I mean, of course, endless scheming is a major sub theme of noir. You know, everyone is scheming all the time. Scheming, thinking. Me, I always remember this line from that movie, and I was about 18 when I first saw it. And the line was when Mitchum, Mitchum's Jeff Bailey, Jeff Markham tells her, yeah, and I'm paraphrasing, um, you're just like, you're just a leaf blowing from one gutter to the next. It's like, wow. I yeah. mean, he's finally figured it out. Yeah, a little too late. He's finally, finally figured her out. Figured yeah. her out. And, um, what about a favorite um, neo-noir? Is, do you have a, a favorite uh, noir, say, you know, from, well, let's say, just say the 19, late 1960s forward? Well, it's interesting. The last chapter of yes, the I book is I'm an extended after. You cover all the bases. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I call it New Generation Noir. And I end that chapter, and and, and, and I end the book uh, with the 2010 adaptation of The Killer Inside Me, which is absolutely brilliant. It's a wonderful showcase. Casey Affleck takes full advantage of it as a, uh, as a rather physically slight uh, but competent deputy. Always smiling, always deferential, always polite, handsome. Everybody likes him. And he's a serial killer. Nobody knows him. He, oh I know this is out of a Jim Thompson novel of the same title. And, and so as you might expect, it is really bleak. It was directed by Michael Winterbottom. 
and uh, it's a period. I mean, it's set in Texas. Uh, I haven't seen that myself. Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know how I missed well, that. Uh, I was wondering though how you how you feel in general about the it's idea a, of the neo noir because you so um, kind of firmly make uh, the film noir kind of period as um, 1940 to 1960, and I and that. I think is obviously the heyday of the genre, but there are obviously no shortage of neo-noirs all throughout history, especially in the last 10, 20 years. Oh, no. No. Well, I, I'm in the book. I, uh, I cite Psycho as the last of the classic noirs. Uh, and, and I'll be brief about this, but it's a film that just exploded the entire genre. You know, I mean, all of our expectations about the couple that can't get married and the $40,000 and the Snoopy yes. private dick and the long um, anxious no, car ride. Exploded, yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't mean a goddamn thing. Exploited and buried them simultaneously. So maybe Hitchcock was saying that all film yes. noir before was um, always so, about the mother and, and all that, right? Yeah, right, yes. Yeah, I mean, so after Psycho, every other noir right, right. is inevitably... I'm self-referential. I'm drawing off of I'm an earlier no, tradition. Doesn't make the many less worthy. If I were to say what my favorite, I have two favorite neo noirs, and they would be mm-hmm. LA Confidential for me. Just oh, kind yeah. of hit all the right buttons, and as as you both just commented on, is very very referential. Uh, as is as is James Elroy in general. But I I have to say, you know, my love of Jane Greer is is it carries through to Taylor Hackford's. Uh, semi remake of you know against all odds which you also mentioned in the book and uh it is a good picture i'm a big fan of, i saw it in the theater when it came yes, out that's a very i was good a big picture, Jeff Bridges fan and i love rachel <laughs> ward who had just come off of you know sharky's machine as well as yep. you know another self-referential yeah, neo-noir which was uh, uh carl reiner's um dead men don't wear plaid uh, <laughs> and uh, I just love Against All Odds as a remake of Out of the Past. It's sufficiently different enough that I don't really compare them. And of course, Jane Greer's in it. You know, oh, that's that's really interesting. I, uh, no. the, you know, I, I was thinking about I, I neo. I'm, uh, I cannot speak all of a sudden. Uh, neo noirs for me are, are I, I really like them a lot um, for the most part, and I like the self referentiality, but. Um, I think like a lot of the Coen Brothers stuff is to me, you know, like Blood Simple is, it seems to me they're trying to do an earnest film noir in a way. But my favorite lately is, uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick. I don't know if you guys know that one. Well, I thought you'd say Dark City. I do like Dark City as well. Yeah. I like, uh, I like a lot of the, uh, science fiction film noirs, but, uh, but Brick, it's this very strange film with, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt. And it's set in high school, and it does all of the film noir tropes. They're, 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 they bite the cue. They're, they're really fast talkers. They're, but it's all set in a high school, so they're leaving notes in each other's lockers and all this. But it's got every single trope. No kidding. Uh, the femme fatale. Yeah, the the twists and turns. The uh, you know the shot in color. Uh, shot in color. Yeah, uh, a lot of it's handheld. It's 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 amazing. And Joseph Gordon Levitt plays this really young. Um, impossibly sophisticated in certain ways uh uh anti-hero it's 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 pretty it's pretty crazy brick yes okay <laughs> yeah so i, I just saw it recently myself. Now. thank because, you because of looper I, I thought i'd go back and look at that and i was like wow this is this is interesting david we thought we'd end it tonight almost like the <laughs> the psychologist's uh test of word association type game here i <laughs> going to throw out some some titles to you. I, I've got a couple that I was just going to throw out. I know Eric has a couple, just to sort of get your knee-jerk reactions to them. One of mine was Narrow Margin, which we already covered, and I know we both love. But uh, yeah. So I say gun crazy, and what do you say? Yeah. Sexual obsession, baby. <laughs> you know, it's a couple of wild animals. They're in lust. <laughs> How about Night of the Hunter? That's art noir. Art noir. <laughs> like that. Yes. Crime Art, wave. A R T. Crime wave. Innocent <laughs> schlub on the deadly. run through no fault of his own. Kiss me deadly. Not just one of the great pictures of the fifties, uh, but a major accomplishment. I agree. I agree. Of world cinema. Period. This is fun. <laughs> Lady in the lake. Lady in the lake. 
stylistically pretentious, <laughs> but oh, with a very yeah, potent central performance. The big sleep. Big sleep. Uh, there's something that's very jokey. I mean, amusing about that film. I mean, it's very insouciant somehow. Um, it's also the picture that right, doesn't exactly, make a lick exactly. of who sense, cares who did? It doesn't and matter. it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. who cares? Yeah. I love that uh, scene in there with the uh, in the, in the bookstore. <laughs> it doesn't you know, matter. The bookstore is casing the joint. That's when you have to give up on that film, I think. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. How so about funny. Fallen Angel? Oh. I've always thought that Linda Darnell might be the most beautiful of all get a big of the Hollywood actresses of that period, Particularly or maybe ever. As a, she's a naughty little um, waitress. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, in the book, um, I look at it as um, an inversion in that we assume that anyone as, uh, um, as stunningly gorgeous wrong, wrong. says so she see why Dana Andrews has goodness in her. She's yeah, he, 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 mm-hmm. uh, he's on the edge of being a low Hustling life himself. <laughs> and I guess water always finds some level. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, they're meant for each other. I mean, she's a crumb. Uh, I mean, it's that inversion again. I mean, it's so fascinating about that picture. I mean, Otto Preminger, they're a brilliant, it's so highly assured um, storyteller. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah, and and it's quite yeah. varied. I can't remember also. the title of it now. What's the What's the one where Humphrey Bogart gets his face redone? Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's either <laughs> Dead Reckoning or Dark Passage. Uh, Dark Passage. That's it. Yeah, I always confuse. <laughs> it's contrived, but um, it's probably the best use of subjective camera. I'm in the genre. Yeah, I agree. And and it's such a lovely part for Lauren Bacall also, uh, and that she's so sympathetic and so caring. Yeah, There's nothing like soft about her either. How about uh, I'm, I'm going to think of a Nick Rain mm-hmm. film, but I don't I don't know if I want to say Party Girl. I don't know if I want to say uh, on, on Dangerous Ground. Oh, how about I've never seen this. So how about Winds oh, Across oh, the Party Everglades or something Party. like that? I've never seen it, but. Do you know that one, David? I it do. Color, yeah, yeah. But, I don't think it's a noir film. It's not a noir. Okay, damn. I, that's, I've, if I you want to ask I, me like about Natalie Party Wood Girl, do. Sure, I love that film. When I sought uh, out every Sid Cherise film when I was a kid, as I possibly could. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about Party Girl is that oh, fifteen or twenty years after its release, Nick Ray, uh, you know, a famous oh. legend. I'm um, actually sad. It was a piece of shit. Um, I talk about this in the book. He was just feeling kind of unfairly put upon. Uh, I see. It was a film for hire. And he had no input into the screenplay or the editing. And, and it doesn't jive right. with the uh, auteur theory at all. And yet... He put so much glorious symbolism in. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that really, picture, visual symbolism, you know, color vivid, symbolism. Vivid um, I haven't watched in a while. I was one I recorded when I was well, 19, oh, it's stunning. Years old, off yeah. of like Cinemax or something, and and watched it over and over. Uh, I Lee J. <laughs> Cobb is so wonderful in it. Robert Taylor, yeah. obviously, but and Sid just owns the film, and it it was just so elegantly put together. Um, yeah. And it had, but it had a raw edge to it. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, and uh, um, I think that when Nick Ray, I'm distant, he was just feeling a little peckish and put upon. And uh, uh, I, mean, I think he always valued uh, his own independence, and he didn't quite have that on Party Girl, you know. Uh, uh, it was work for hire, and yet despite all of his protestations, I think it's a brilliant film, and, and I mean, he obviously put a lot of thought 
and, and a lot of himself yeah, into their picture. Um, so I, I recommend. Actually, uh, let me ask one one yeah. last question, um, and this might be might be a little tricky. If if for some reason we have uh, any listeners that still need an introduction to film noir, haven't seen any, and for some reason suffered through over an hour discussion about the genre <laughs> at this point, if anyone, mm-hmm. if you had to pick one, maybe two films for someone to start with who have really uh, no exposure to the to the to the genre. What would you choose? I think if you're interested in the determinist angle, it should be Almer's Detour. Uh, that's a PRC picture, uh, about eighty five thousand dollars, and uh, it's incredibly bleak um, and fascinating. I'm an Ann Savage as the tubercular femme fatale, uh, uh, is a ratty wonder in that. I mean, disheveled, her hair is dirty. She's in this crappy sweater that's buttoned the wrong way. And she's just so spiteful. She's an idiot. And then she hooks up with this hapless musician, uh, on his way out to California, Tom Neal. And uh, it's simultaneously amusing, very, very sobering and spooky. Um, Yeah, I think that's a good place to start as well. And it's streaming on Netflix. Great. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It's 1945. And if you're interested, uh, I'm in the sexual angle. Yeah. It just uh, has to be good. I was telling you, I just come off that... um, uh, cult films class I had been teaching at Wayne State and we screened Gun Crazy and the students went, students went crazy for the film. It was, uh, it was really, uh, um, it, it reminds me of, uh, the woman huh? next door, you know, <laughs> in the sense that these two people are so connected to each other. They just need, they need to consume and eat each other. They love each other. It they does. Separated yes. there, you know, and it's all, all linked through, you know, a gunplay in this film. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. It's a great moment up on the stage at the carnival after they first meet, and Peggy Cummins actually walks all the way around on John Dahl yep. and is <laughs> eyeing him up and down, you know, face, oh, chest, ass, everything. And it's just so aggressive yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and so funny, is, too. Uh, uh, I'm an honest. This camera is just so, it's so everywhere, too, in the film. It's, uh, such a lost, tre- not lost treasure, but sort of like unknown treasure in the sense that, yeah, it's a cult film, but uh, most people have not seen it, you know, and it's, um, like, still maintains that status, I suppose. Yeah, those, those look like two good places to go, yeah. you know. I think, uh, I'm gonna highly recommend that anybody, yeah, it, uh, it, buy the book, Film Noir Facts. Did you say FAQ or FAQ? I always say FAQ. FAQ. I always say Found Noir. Anyway, anyway, Film Noir FAQ by, uh, FAQ. by David Hogan. I, I think it's well worth, uh, I have had the, I mean, it's a continuing narrative. FAQ is, uh, I'm an invention of the publisher and, and, and it's part of a series. You know, James Bond, FAQ and outstanding books about Star Trek, FAQ. Uh, it's a marketing hook. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I love that. It's a lot more fact, pleasingly dense. Oh, absolutely. Like you said, yeah, pleasantly. You said it well. It's it's not just a list of film noir. It's it's it does a lot with the uh, social aspects, the the um, you know framing and interpretation and all kinds of really interesting stuff. I really highly recommend it. David, we can't thank you enough for spending uh, this this past hour with us and talking about the book and just. Talking about this, this genre that we love so much and, uh, that we've devoted so much time of our lives to, yeah. to consuming. So, um, thank you. Well, it's been such we'll a good time. A I wish we could talk another, another four or five hours about this. All right. See you next time. Bye bye. Hey, thanks for listening to uh, That's a Wrap, episode number four. Uh, thanks for sticking with us to the end on this one. I know that it got a little choppy there at the end. Uh, the software we were, we were using 
to record Skype was putting Nick and I, who were on the same mic on the same computer, before David, um, and there was nothing I could do to fix it because it was not a multi-track recording. But we have since switched software, and I think next time we do a Skype interview, it's going to be a lot cleaner. I I thought it was worth keeping as much as possible because I thought that was a very fascinating discussion, and I hope you did too. Uh, go to thatsarapshow.com for feedback. Uh, you can link to the Facebook page from there. Uh, we have a Twitter account as well, Google+, Plus. anything you want to do in order to uh, interact with us. We'd really appreciate it. See you next time. Bye. Cut. That's a wrap. Mm-hmm.